This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I think the church is one of the most important partners we um, have at a community and at a systems level to be able to combat the pandemic. I think there are a lot of people who are waiting to see what their pastor does on vaccines to know what they should do. This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, the podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jamie Ayton and Laura Finch to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors from everyday acts of kindness to the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. Our guest today is Nicolette Lusaint, who served as the Senior Advisor to the U.S. State Department Special Coordinator for Ebola. She is now Executive Director and President of Healthcare Ready, a nonprofit organization focused on strengthening the United States healthcare supply chain preparedness and response before, during, and after natural disasters and disease pandemics. She has an MBA from the University of Baltimore and a PhD in pharmacology and molecular sciences from John Hopkins University of Medicine. Nicolette, welcome. We're so grateful that you're here with us. Thank you for having me. Good to hear you both. Yes, and Nicolette, we've been, we were so grateful to get to collaborate with you on a couple of projects during this past year. And as we get started, I wonder if you could share for people who are listening, what have you been doing? What's been your work and focus during this time of COVID? So um, I first want to begin just by um, thanking you for having me um, and introducing the organization that I currently lead. Um, I, I think in, in the intro, we didn't get a chance to talk about Healthcare Ready, and I think that's important context for mm -hmm. that. Um, so Healthcare Ready is the organization where I'm very proud to serve as the executive director. It's a national nonprofit organization that was initially a coalition that emerged into a full-on nonprofit after Hurricane Katrina. So this year is actually our 15-year anniversary. The coalition was formed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, especially for nonprofits in the United States, hitting 15 years is quite an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So very proud of that, um, despite the reasons that <laughs> we are still necessary as an organization. Um, so we, we were formed as a coalition after Katrina, recognizing that there needed to be a single place where members of the healthcare supply chain, all of those big companies that we sometimes know, sometimes have never heard of, they'll play a big role in moving, well, I should start with manufacturing, moving, and then dispensing or delivering medications um, during a disease outbreak. Um, they needed a place to be able to work together on these issues, and they needed a place to be able to work with the federal government and state and local government partners during disasters to make sure that disruption to healthcare systems did not result in delays of treatment and care for people facing a medical crisis in the middle of a, an, an outside disaster, a natural disaster, disease outbreak. And so with that, that's been very much what we've been doing for the last year, focused on 
stabilizing the supply chain in partnership with our um, government partners and those um, companies that I mentioned before, working to make sure that we are doing everything we can to increase coordination so that um, everything from a small community hospital or a nursing home that needs sanitizer um, to a large facility that needs to make sure that they're getting supplies that they need, get the support that they can get. Um, as well as working through donations and partnering with some of our other NGO partners to be able to use corporate donations to be able to procure and distribute donations to facilities across the nation, health clinics and others that really need those products, um, to making sure that we have a plan for not just the vaccine rollout, but education for communities around vaccines, therapeutics that are now available that were not available at the beginning of the pandemic, um, and beginning to carve out a plan for how we begin to recover from this pandemic, which will take decades. And so that's what we've been up to for the last year. And as you can imagine, it's been quite busy. Well, Nicolette, as you were sharing there, I, I started to ask about, you know, what are some of the kind of maybe bright spots or challenges that you've seen in the work that you're doing that you just described, but you said something there very at the end that I think I've got to um, follow up on here because I think a lot of others will be curious. So you said that you think it'll be maybe another decade as we start to deal with the overall pandemic. So as a disaster researcher myself, I know that it can sometimes be difficult telling others about you know, wanting us to be hopeful, but also the realities of what we face. Could you unpack that a little bit more for us about what you meant? Sure. So what we know is that um, after catastrophic disasters, it typically takes about um, 15 to 30 years, depending on the scope of the event, for there to be full recovery. Um, and full recovery does not mean that the system is better. It means that the system is similar to the system that we had prior to that disaster, which means that in a place like New Orleans or um, Mobile, Alabama, which were both hit pretty hard by Katrina, they're still in some state of recovery from Hurricane Katrina while dealing with other, other disasters, no doubt, in the last 15 years. And so when we think about a pandemic um, that is as far-reaching as, as long um, enduring um, as this one, we expect that we're going to take about 30 years to get to full recovery. And it, we know that that 30 years of recovery is not going to be in isolation. There are going to be other things that happen that um, jolt the system, that strain our resources in between there. But we know that it is going to take decades for us to get to a place where we are fully recovered from something that's been this catastrophic and damaging to so many different components of society. And what are some, what are some um, more examples of that, Nicolette? When you say 30 years, I think this is fascinating if people aren't in disasters think, wait, I thought, I thought by September all was going to be, you know, <laughs> clear and clear and normal back in school and everything. You can give some real, real specifics, you know, if you think 30 years, like what, what is it that's taking that long uh, to recover uh, in the ways that you said? Sure. I think when we think about um, systems and stability, we, we should be thinking about it a bit differently. Oftentimes we think about systems from the vantage point of just the part of the system that I rely on or I need. Even when we think about stability, we often think about it from the vantage point of my own needs or my own household. Um, and it makes it really difficult for people to understand that even though you might be okay or the systems you depend on might feel like they've resumed normalcy, that other systems in society may not be normal. 
So you can look at that from an individual perspective and think about the ways in which we hold trauma and the fact that for the last 14 months, many people, um, the better part of most um, Americans, for example, from polls and surveys, um, people from across the globe have noted that they have had tremendous mental health impacts from this disaster, some of whom um, have sought help, many of whom have stopped trying to seek help. The way our bodies hold trauma um, has an impact on how we hold um, other things like stress and disease as well. So there's that type of recovery in thinking about how we heal from that trauma and what that means physiologically as we continue to press forward and how um, that has an impact on, on our medical conditions in the next 30 years. But then there's also school systems, the amount of money that school systems have spent on laptops and trying to increase broadband access and what that means for the next 10 years of um, school district budgets and what they will or won't be able to afford. Um, also thinking about you know society broadly, all of the money that we've spent towards COVID recovery, what does that mean for our infrastructure investments or other investments that continue to maintain um, our society? I'll just stick on infrastructure for a second because often that's what suffers. Bridges, roads, highways, tunnels. How much money is not going towards the maintenance or even um, improvement of those? Because we've now had to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars just to try to get towards some response to this pandemic. Um, just Those are some examples I could truly keep going. But really, when you think about it, it's every portion of society, whether that be at the macro, the biggest level of our finance systems, our healthcare systems, our infrastructure, or the individual level is going to see some time that um, will have to be spent just recovering from the trauma of, of the last year. That's very helpful context as you're such a systemic thinker, Nicolette, about this. And we think about this rippling out for 30 years in ways that, that many of us wouldn't have thought of. What pos Are there any positives that you see coming out of it? Because you know, one is to think about how quickly um, the scientific community can move to a vaccine. Are there scientific breakthroughs? systemic breakthroughs that you think will ripple out in a positive way as well? So I think for one, there's an opportunity for us to really think about what it means to not just recreate the old system, but to truly rethink how systems should exist. Um, I, I've heard a lot of people talking about um, how we rebuild um, and even the current administration's um, logo of Build Back Better. Um, it it su suggests that instead of thinking about recovery as getting back to how we were, we can actually shift towards recovery from a vantage point of how we want to be. And I think that's a good opportunity for us to really think about how to improve our systems and how we build it in a way that leaves us stronger, addresses a lot of the inequities that were in systems prior to COVID. Um, and, and maybe if we're, if we're really going to be far reaching about this, maybe even thinks about how the systems that we're looking to improve really are more sustainable so that the next time we have a disaster like this, it doesn't have to take such a toll on communities and individuals as it has this time. 
so Nicolette, as you think about that, can you talk a little bit more about, you mentioned, you know, the current administration, we've just changed administrations in the response. Could you give us some response to what you're seeing uh, in the Biden administration's uh, plan and how you see that moving forward in the, the weeks and months ahead? Sure. So just, just as an important timestamp, I want to note that we are less than a week into the new administration. So I think a lot of the strategies right now are notional. Um, they're beginning to really get their teams together. And so we should revisit this in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, just noting that there's so much that's currently underway. Um, I think there's a, um, a recognition that the response needs to be a lot more cohesive. Um, there's an opportunity to um, keep equity at the center of the response, whether it be thinking through who gets vaccine first to um, how we protect those that are most exposed. Um, recognizing that there's also a world where we now have variants of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, um, that means something different from a medical perspective and, and working to get ahead of um, our understanding of those viruses, our characterization of the variants so that we are prepared as they spread across the globe. Um, and then reemerging in our role with the global community, I think, is another one that that I'm seeing as a big trend. Recognizing that we can't possibly fight a pandemic by um, sectioning ourselves off from the rest of the world, and that there is a need for us to really lean forward and work with the global community, including the WHO, but also, um, you know, the EU, um, our our partners in the Africa region. Um, really doing more to make sure that we are a part of the global conversation all the way into um, what's called COVAX, the COVID-19 vaccine facility program, which is the pooled effort to make sure that um, the, in partnership with the WHO, the available vaccines would be allocated to countries to make sure that all countries have access to the vaccine in a timely fashion. Mm, thanks, Sinclair. One of the things I wanted to ask you while we were talking here is uh, we, Jamie and I were honored to get to work with you on a couple of projects during uh, during COVID. And one of, one of them was uh, this guide led by our colleague, Dr. Theon Hill, called The Black Church in Action Against Racism and COVID-19, a practical and biblical guide to prophetic ministry while protecting health. And with that in the background, also kind of a two-part question, but I wonder if you could share a little bit about what the Tuskegee experiment is for any listeners who you know maybe just read it in the history book um, back some time ago and then also explain like what are the implications as you thought, thought of, you know you mentioned the inequities and that the administration is hopefully going to be dealing with some of those as they roll it out but I wonder if you could talk about the Tuskegee experiment and talk about specific challenges and opportunities within the black community as there's this rollout of a vaccine Sure. I think there's there's a, a bit more work that we need to do in terms of how we draw a straight line between some of those pieces. So yeah. I'm going to try to tether that a little bit, mm -hmm. but um, cut me off at any point. No. Um, so I, I think the first question um, on the Tuskegee experiment, and I, and I want to I use tenses here because I think it matters. Um, the Tuskegee experiment was um, mm -hmm. something that did... Um, it, go on for about 20 years but um it was a um it, it was a poorly done um 
maliciously executed. Um, it was it was termed as a clinical trial, but it truly wasn't. It was an experiment that was done that um, happened over the course of a few decades that um, exposed um, black men, in particular um, black former servicemen, to syphilis um, in an interest of learning what would happen to their bodies as they were infected, knowing that there was a treatment for syphilis. They were not also exposed to the treatment or given the opportunity to be fully aware of what they were being given. Um, the trial or, or study, if you will, um, was halted after it came to light what was being done um, in portions of the U.S. Um, government um, health experimentation system. Um, I, I want to I, I want to pause there because I think it's important to clarify a few things. Mm -hmm. One is that um, in reaction to that, as well as many other studies, the legal process, the regulations and the controls around clinical trials that are in place and have been in place for the last 20 plus years um, are, are significantly different than they were at that time. Um, by all accounts, the Tuskegee experiment, as it was executed, is deemed illegal. Mm -hmm. And it's important for me to make sure that, that I lift that up um, in the same breath that I talk about the experiment, because I want it to be clear that what happened with the Tuskegee experiment is not a clinical trial. It's not a clinical study. Um, and it would not be viewed um, as something that would be legal. In not just today's framework, but but even the framework that we've used for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it's important that we mention that because there are a lot of trials that that played a role in the vaccines and the therapeutics that we have available right now for COVID. And it's important to know that we're not talking about the same system. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that the protections were radically different. Um, and so with that, um, I think it's important to note that also within the clinical trials process today, there is, um, under what we call pandemic preparedness plans, there is a plan for how we would rapidly work to identify and then develop what are called medical countermeasures, treatments, vaccines, tests that allow for us to respond to a pandemic. And so for the last year, a lot of what we've put in place to be able to work towards a vaccine, to, towards the therapies that exist, as well as tests to be able to detect COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 when someone is infected, have all played from the, um, the, the framework and the, the plans that have been in place for pandemic preparedness and response. Um, and, and I think that's important because while we've worked very quickly, it's been under established frameworks and it's been using the um, existing policies and permissions that were in place, knowing that we would have a pandemic hit our shores at some point. Mm -hmm. I, I think I've answered both questions, but if not, feel free to hammer me. No, they're, no, they're great. And I, you know, I, I asked them in this broad way. It's not my expertise. But that's very helpful. And then can you say a little bit, I think one of the things that I was learning from you and from others during, during COVID while we were working on the project together was that some communities, uh, particularly maybe the black community would have, um, you know, specific challenges, challenges during COVID. One is, I think you talk really eloquently in, in some of your writing and interviews about how 
Um, what a challenge like this does is expose uh, pre-existing injustices. That's not quoting you, but you know, sort of, those are exposed. And then even when the vaccine rolls out, are there going to be specific challenges that uh, that exist in some communities in our country? Uh, and you know, maybe maybe because of the preparation, there are going to be less of those. But I wonder if you could talk about those those two things. How how are injustice is exposed in moments like this and then mm-hmm. how does that relate to challenges to then you know getting a vaccine to people sure so i will say um you know kent you jamie have heard me say many times that i do not believe that disasters create um inequity so much as they expose existing inequities mm-hmm. um and to me what that means is that um you know during a disaster it becomes very clear how the poor get poorer because the inequities that enabled them to be existing in a very fragile and vulnerable state become all, all of the, whatever those safeguards were become erased. And all of a sudden the, their inequities are exposed. Mm-hmm. There are people, for example, and I, I really want to lift up that there's a lot of work that's been happening outside of me. Um, but we have colleagues at the university of Pittsburgh um, and other places that have been doing work for a number of um, years to really show that there are people who actually become richer after disasters. Um, it's not everyone that um, is actually going to experience a disaster and become poorer or um, have a difficult time um, being able to recover. But because of existing inequities, there are some people who are going to suffer in that way. And so I think that's one piece. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the vaccine, I'll just say, and I think it's really important that, um, you know, you said something and I, while we've been working on this, yeah, I definitely think we could have um, certainly had a um done a better job with the vaccine rollout, but I think we should have been doing a much better job just explaining what our plans were and how we plan to move forward on it. So, you know, to your point, yes, there has been a lot of work, but do I think we could have been doing a better job way before the vaccine was available, educating people on what was happening and what would happen next? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to give um, credit where credit is due. Professor Junia Howell from the University of Pittsburgh does a masterful job at explaining exactly how disasters expose inequities and what it means for how people fare during disasters and how they recover from them. And her work has really been um, one of the um, seminal bodies of work that have really helped us to understand what what we should be looking for when we understand um, the intersection of race, um, class, and disaster recovery. So... Um, when you take all of that information that we knew was true for any disaster and you apply it to the pandemic, um, what it shows is that we had to have a more radical approach in thinking through how we took necessary action to stop the progression of the pandemic. And one of the most interesting things to me is that the vaccine rollout is one such example where you would look at how we are rolling out the vaccine as it relates to who is getting it when, how we're determining phases of eligibility, because we do not have enough vaccine to vaccinate all 300 million Americans at once, nor could we Mm -hmm. for various reasons, including the fact that, you know, 
um, most of the, the approved vaccines right now are not um, eligible for children under the age of 16. Mm-hmm. So when you take all that together, we've made a decision that basically says we're going to vaccinate the most vulnerable first, not last. And when you look at those measures of vulnerability, you're looking at age, you're looking at um, role in in the role in upholding society. So sure, they're government leaders because there's continuity of government, which means state houses and governors and all of that. But then they're also going to be um, essential workers, people who cannot work from home, frontline um, first responders, individuals with multiple comorbidities. And as you go down that list, what you're going to start to see is that the majority of those individuals, especially in places that have been particularly hard hit by COVID, are black or brown. And so what it leaves you with is a scenario where, for the first time ever, we're saying we have this top-notch product that is going to be protective, that is going to help us to make sure that you live longer and you are not impacted by this tremendous threat. And we're giving it to black and brown people first. And when in the history of our responses to such catastrophic events, have we taken that approach? And because of that, that is actually doing more to create greater suspicion or mistrust Because people are looking and saying, never before has there been a solution that actually is protecting people, is saving lives, is going to allow black and brown people to live longer and be healthier, and we give it to them first. So what's wrong with this that we would want black and brown people to get it first and not last? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. just shows that it brings me back to your earlier point about how um, the effects of these things can ripple out for 30 years. And obviously this is stepping into racism that's rippling out 400 plus years. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and it's really helpful to think about this, this moment in this broader context, as we think about this moment moving forward and not, not just the black church, but churches across the country. um, What is, what can churches do right now? Like in the months ahead to help with these next upcoming stages of COVID? Anything that comes to mind, sort of practical advice or your hope for what the church can do uh, at this stage of the pandemic? I think the church is one of the most important partners we um, have um, at a community and at a systems level to be able to combat the pandemic. And I say that because... um, There are a few things that I I personally believe, but also professionally have seen to be true. One is that um, for most people, especially those people who are going to be in those eligibility groups that we just talked about for vaccine, they may have more interaction with their pastor or religious leader than even members of their family. They may hear from their pastor more, listen to their pastor more, um, you know, thinking about the Christian tradition at, at a minimum. We're talking about maybe Bible study during the week um, and church on Sunday. So I think it's important for churches to not see themselves as separate from this effort, 
um, or to to relegate themselves to having a, a, a job when it comes to maintaining one's spirit and soul, but not one's body. Um, I think it's important to have places to ask those questions and have that conversation. Um, I think there are a lot of different conversations that need to be had. Everything from how did we get here? What is this vaccine? Should I take it? How should I expect to feel? What is the next year of you know this pandemic going to look like and feel like for me? I think there's so many conversations that need to be had. And I think the church for many people, again, in aggregate, but also at the community level, that's where people want to be able to have those conversations because that's where they're able to contextualize whatever they're hearing about the pandemic with all of the other parts of their life that they're trying to figure out and sort through with their church. I also think how we sustain the church in the pandemic is important um, and making sure that we are creating solutions that allow for churches to continue to maintain and thrive, knowing that in-person services probably will not happen until late this year, if we're being very honest. So what does it look like for us to maintain the church but also think about how we can enforce those non-pharmaceutical interventions that are going to keep us from protecting people that we care about who may not be vaccinated yet for different reasons. How do we enforce mask wearing? How are we enforcing hand washing? Um, How are we enforcing social distancing? And how are we beginning to think about how the church can enforce those things when when the doors eventually do reopen? So all of those things, I think, are really critical. I think there are a lot of people who are waiting to see what their pastor does Mm. on vaccines to know what they should do. Um, I think there are a lot of people that are looking to see who their pastor trusts Mm -hmm. as it relates to where they're getting information in order to determine whether or not they are listening to the right people. Um, there's so much misinformation that's flying out there that I think having verified sources of information are so critical. And I think that's where a church plays such an important role, because if you can vet and if you can um, approve those individuals who might be speaking to your congregation, then I think that gives an automatic place for information to be um, received and trusted by the congregation. I have started to see some pastor friends on my Facebook feed who are doing the selfies, you know, while they get their while they get their shots. But I think it's very much, you know, mm-hmm. it's trying to have this conversation and and be this place where where churches are having the conversation that you're talking about. It's very helpful advice. Um, pivoting to a few more personal questions. Um, one, I know you, this has just been an incredibly intense year for all of us, and your workload being right in this area. Uh, has certainly been intense. How have you sustained your pace of work? What tricks do you have? Uh, hobbies that have helped you through the past year? What's what's um, kept you going and kept you from burning out uh, if you're not burned out uh, during the past year? Sure. So I will be honest and say I I I'm certainly at burnout. Um, but I I think for me it's been very different because I. The, the place where I sit and the, the role that I hold, I, I knew I was going to get to burnout and I knew there was not much I was going to be able to do about it. So my goal has been a bit different than what I would advise anyone. Um, my goal has been making sure that 
I am very mindful of not just how I approach burnout, but how I can get out of it. Um, and that I have a plan for how I'm able to sustain in the year to come. Um, and again, I don't, I don't recommend this for anyone. Um, but I, I just <laughs> want to be honest about how I'm coming to this and, and how, you know, some of the advice that I'm, I'm giving, I would say is probably not advice that I've been able to take by nature of the job that I have mm-hmm. and the role that we serve. Um, I, for me, one thing that's been very helpful is um, I was an avid um, gym rat before this. That was, a, um, for me, a really important place for me to decompress, take a break, but also tend to my health. And I wasn't able to do that. So I've had to invest in solutions that I recognize I'm very fortunate to be able to invest in to be able to work out at home, which mm-hmm. has given me the ability to hop on a bike at 2 a.m. if that's the time. <laughs> Um, or take a 10 minute break during the day and do the same thing. But that flexibility has been really key. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say for me, it's been, um, you know, my neighbor's dog, for example, often spends days with me when I am working from home um, and, you know, having that bright spot. And, and I don't know if anybody's never had a puppy, um, having a pet um, that's always excited to see you, no matter like what your mood is or you know what your disposition is, is wonderful. <laughs> our kids, um, well, our kids almost broke us down to get the COVID puppy, but we, we resisted barely. I, think, so. <laughs> I You know, I'm on your kid's side. I'm on your kid's side on this one. I think if there's any time to do it, I think this is, this is definitely the time to do it. Um, you know, but things like that, I think have been really helpful. Some of it is, is not looking to do the big things, not creating big, massive shifts, but really looking to do smaller, sustainable things that allow for I, I, what I think is um, a much more um, palatable adjustment to what life looks like right now um, and something that can actually be maintained over the next few months. And that's why I've tried to avoid um, the Zoom friend chats because I'm, I'm Zoomed out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've tried to avoid adding in things that I, I don't think I can sustain because that becomes another source of guilt if I'm not able to sustain it. So for me, it's small incremental things that I've been able to uphold and that's made a big difference for me. Yes, that's good, good advice. And I think we, we talked about it sometimes as we're working with our master's degree students, for example, that when you do this kind of work, it's not every day or every week or every month is going to be balanced, but it's more of this long-term health and there are going to be times of intense of intense response, mm-hmm. which is this whole year has been, but that's great advice for finding these moments uh, in the middle. So now we want to shift, and this is the way we close, been closing these interviews with, we ask five big questions that we ask you to answer in just a few sentences each. So questions okay. too big for the amount of time, but just to run through and get your thoughts. So we've touched on some of these, um, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on these big five better Samaritan questions. And um, what's something that has surprised you in your work in the past year? I think so much of it. Um, something that's, one thing that surprised me in my work in the past year is, um, frankly, how critical it is. Um, I, I've really come to realize that there are certain places that Um, certain ways that we sit in certain spaces that if we were not pushing certain conversations um, as an organization, I'm not sure where those conversations would live or if they would exist anywhere at all. 
That's a great affirmation. And related to that, a second question, what's a way that you've been learning to do good better? What's something that you've gotten better at or see that you've been improving at uh, in this work? Setting boundaries for myself as a, a, a requirement for my ability to do my job well. Um, that may not be the direction that you were expecting me to go no, into, good. but part of what I've realized is that when they're, you know, as I, I often tell my, my staff, when the universe of needs is so great and you realize that there's so many different places um, where you can make impact, understanding where you should make impact becomes very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's different than when you're looking at something and saying, oh, this is obviously the thing I should do. Versus when you're looking and saying, well, there are seven things I could do, and I could kind of do seven of them, I could do five of them well, but I probably only have the ability to do three. How do you really set up the guardrails that allow you to do that? Um, And for me, that's been really critical. And that's also given me the ability to find space and grace to find partners that can do the things that I can't, and given me the ability to elevate their very important work so that we're cumulatively making all of that impact, but not um, in a way that that drains any one of us or diminishes our ability to fulfill our ultimate missions. Good, good advice. Uh, third question: How do you define humility in the context of your discipline? Um, in the context of my discipline, humility is recognizing that there there is no such thing as me. Um, there has to be an us in order for the system to work. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way that we have a system that works, much less one that works in a disaster, is if we put ourselves aside, um, our egos aside, and look at how we accomplish it together. Excellent. And what's uh, one thing, I know there would be many, but what's one thing that you think can make the road safer in the area you work in. So the road safer, referring back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, sermon of we want to help the Good Samaritan who's beaten up and robbed by the side of the road, but we also want to make the road safer for those who are going to travel it in the future. What's one way that you see through this experience that we can make the road safer for those who are coming in the future? I think we often look at things from the vantage point of where we sit and um, and then say, well, here's my role based on this. Here's this role based on government. Here's this role based on private sector. And that's just not how roads work. So if we were able to look at um, the needs collectively and just identify what needs to happen to protect um, patients, protect those most vulnerable, and move out on that, I think that's what makes the road safer. It's, it's understanding that it's all a part of a system and how we protect the least of these is going to be how we put all of our collective resources together to be able to accomplish that. And how do you sustain hope? Last question. How do you sustain hope in the midst of your work? Um, It's funny because as you were asking the question, I um, there, there's a hymn that um, immediately came to mind. Um, but I, I think it's understanding that I, I understanding what you're hoping in. Um, I am very clear that um, my hope does not lie within um, a particular political administration. It does not lie within a particular 
um, piece of a system within a particular person or even a company. Um, my, my hope lies in, in something that is um, far greater. Um, and for me, it's maintaining that, um, that focus on um, where my hope truly lies, as my dad always likes to remind us, God is our source. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, it's, it's really about understanding that I can, only, I can only do but so much. And I work with people who have the ability to fulfill a purpose that that has been carved out in them. And I I can't force them to do that. Mm. But my hope is that um, my hope is in um, a source that is over all of those systems and is over all of those people and understanding that purpose will be fulfilled. Mm. And thanks, Nicolette. And what's what him came to your mind? (laughs) <laughs> I knew you were going to ask. Um, I, so one of my favorite hymns is He Lives. Um, mm-hmm. And I can, to this day, I can hear my grandmother's voice singing it. Um, that says, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Um, I, I know that he leads me wherever men may, may stray. And I just, I, as you were asking the question, I, I, heard, um, I, I heard her voice and I heard that hymn um, saying, um, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Amen. What a perfect place to conclude. Thank you so much, Nicolette. Uh, So respect you and your work and your leadership. Grateful to get to partner with you. um, And thank you for your time here in this conversation. As we close, is there anything else you want to highlight for listeners? Um, I I encourage everybody to check out Healthcare Ready, which Nicolette uh, talked about at the beginning of the uh, conversation. Anything else you'd like to point people towards? Um, I would just like to leave with a reminder that, um, you know, even though we've been at this pandemic for a number of months, it is changing. There are new variants. Please be careful. Wear your mask over your nose, (laughs) making sure it's covering you and taking every precaution. Um, We are not out of the woods yet, and we want to make sure that everyone is remaining safe. Um, and that um, we are able to once again um, worship together and spend time together um, once this is behind us. So please take every precaution. Um, and Kent, as you said, um, we're at healthcareready.org for more resources and information. Thank you, Nicolette. Look forward to continued conversations in the future. Thank you. I'm so grateful for Nicolette's role in conversation. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And um, I just think about someone who works in healthcare, but she's putting everything that we're talking about, everything we're experiencing in the country in this uh, context that's much more broad than than just the medicine, than just the science. So the science is essential, but so is the church, so is history, so are existing inequalities that we see through society. And then in the midst of that, her hope in God um, that helps to sustain her through it. So so may you be sustained as you keep uh, working in your own community to, to keep growing and doing good better. Uh, and we're grateful to be on this journey with you. Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to The Brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better.
This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.